I'm Harold of Iowa, not from Washington. And, uh, and I'm damn proud of it, all of you former Iowans that are here and present Iowans. The short time I've been here, I thought it was a Long Beach picnic. I guess the reason our state has been dry so long is because all the drunks moved to California. Or the vast majority of them, at least, or their ancestors shoved them out one way or the other. I have a real paradoxical situation on my hands this evening, you know, to remain anonymous, and I was talking to Midge as Chuck was talking about the process of anonymity in the press and the radio and the television. And I said, there really isn't a damn thing I can do about it. Uh, I'm constantly and continually identified as being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know that I've ever publicly given anyone permission to print that. I have said publicly I am an alcoholic many, many times, and I intend to continue to do that. But I am about as anonymous as the American flag in the <laughs> relationship of dealing with the problem of alcoholism in America, and I've had deeply mixed emotions about it. I listened to a tape this afternoon of a talk I gave here eight years ago, uh, this evening, I guess, or approximately. I hadn't had the opportunity to hear it. I've had many people from around the country uh, tell me that they have heard the tape, they bought it, they own it, they're mailing it around to groups and one thing and another, but I'd never really heard what I said that evening. And as I listened to it this afternoon, uh, Maury and a number of other people had talked to me since I arrived last night and said, no, you were here in 1964, 1965, you weren't here in 1963. Now, during that talk, I apologized for the fact my wife and our youngest daughter wasn't with me because we'd had to cancel our trip uh, at the last moment and I had to come late. And my daughter, who was 11 years old at that time, was 19 yesterday. So, damn it, Maury, I defy you to say that it wasn't 1963 <laughs> when I was here. Because I mentioned the fact that she was 11 in that speech. And uh, I know I wouldn't forget her age under any circumstances. I have mixed emotions about what I should say tonight. And uh, the only thing I can say is I hope what I say will perhaps be beneficial to some, particularly to me, and that it may reach out to someone who is in need this evening. I won't do want to go back just a little bit, because frequently I talk to people who say, you know, what the hell does a guy in your position really know about the suffering alcoholic? What does he really know anymore about the aches and the pains and the agonies of those who are just coming off a drunk or coming out of the throes of alcoholism or stages of DTs or whatever it might be. And frequently I wonder myself, I really ask myself, can I really feel the pain and the agony anymore that I have known, that I felt, that I lived with, the embarrassment, the shame, the degradation, the hurt and the anger and the frustration that all of us have felt. And I haven't been able to honestly answer that. But I do know that I am an alcoholic. I said eight years ago, I don't know why I'm an alcoholic, and I don't know why tonight, and I don't really give a damn. I know that I am. I know that I can't drink. 
I know that I never had a normal drink in my life. And the first one that I ever took, it was not a normal drink, if there is any such thing. A compulsion set in me when I drank that I could not stop. I know that it still would. And that's really all I need to know. As I listened to the great speech last night, and the great talk about Dumont, Iowa, it reminded me so much of Ida Grove, Iowa, my own nativity, and which is still my legal residence. And there's not too much difference between Dumont and Ida Grove except 1,700 living souls. If I recall collectively, you said Dumont was 600 and some. Ida Grove was 2,300 when I was born, and it's still 2,300. <laughs> And the annual Chamber of Commerce reports great progress every year. And that is great progress in rural America, to hold your own, believe me. It's great progress. Because as we have looked back over those years, and Maury said, I wish you could give the same talk tonight you gave eight years ago, but I can't. You know, in eight years, there are changes in everyone. There have been changes in me. My views, not toward the program, but my life has changed and everything about me has changed. I was talking to Midge tonight, and I said, you know, I look back at the man I was, and it's almost as though someone else lived that life. I can't believe I really did those things, that I was really that big of a dog. You know, but I know I was that big of a dog, and that's a constant reminder to me. Much of it I am ashamed of. I wish it had never happened to me. I wish I would have been able to avoid it. But I know if I had, I would never be able to feel the things that I feel today. The suffering and the agony of so many millions of our own people today in America who are suffering from afflictions of alcoholism and other addictions that may be just as bad, or in some instances perhaps worse. So I'm grateful to God that I did and am an alcoholic. I'm proud that I am. I'm proud that by knowing the frustrations that I talked of then, the going home and not remembering getting there, the again crawling to the window and looking out to see if the car was there, and if it wasn't, wondering where the hell you left it. And if it was, hurrying to get dressed and rush out and look it over and see what you hid on the way home, not knowing whether it could have been a little child or a dog or anything else that you might have ran into, the waking up and swearing of remorse after you'd promised your wife you'd never do it again for about the thousandth time and meant it the last 900 times, you know, and the real agony of illness, the shame of walking the streets of your own little town, unable to look at the business and men in the town because you didn't know what you'd done the night before or the days before. And the utter hopelessness of it, the utter hopelessness of it, the finally reaching a point, and I never stated this before, and I do want to reemphasize what Chuck said, that I hope if there is press here, they will not relate what I say tonight, even as it's said because it is a matter of personal confidence to me, which I would share with you as fellow alcoholics and members of their families, and not with the press or the general public. But like many of you, I reached the point where life to me was no longer worth living. And in the midst of my agony, I decided that I wanted to end it because I could no longer 
no longer continue to destroy the people I loved the most, and there didn't seem to be any way I could stop. No matter what I said, no matter what I did, I wound up drunk again. How many promises I made, how many ministers I talked to, how many people I listened to, I wound up drunk again. I quit successfully on the wagon, everywhere from six weeks to 14 months. Then I'd try again with the same damn results. Tried every combination in the world, thinking that surely there ought to be a combination I could drink and stay a little bit sober. Now, there wasn't. I listened last night again. You know, we traveled about the same acreage in the war, too, and covered the same grounds and the same drinks. And, uh, God, I, you know, it's a miracle we ever survive. We must have guts of iron, you know, to drink the things we drink and continue to be able to live. But when you reach this point of really crying out in your agony, I was raised in a family that was a religious family. I listened and sat on those hard church pews and attended Sunday school class and did all the things that a young boy should do, you know, to live a proper life. But I don't think I ever really prayed in my life or I ever really expected an answer. I ever really believed there was a God. And I really wasn't ever allowed to ask those questions. But I prayed then a very simple prayer. You know, God help me. I cannot help myself. If there's any purpose in life for me, for God's sake, take hold of my life and direct it. There's no other place to go. There's nothing else I can do. Either that or I will destroy myself. I have got to have a motivation. And from that point on, my life changed. I'm going to rapidly tell you how I got into AA because I stayed sober for the next 18 months without joining AA. I've been criticized for even mentioning that as an AA meeting because it's sacrilegious to get dry without joining AA. All of you know that. And, uh, but they were a miserable 18 months. I was mentally drunk. I was upset. I was angry with the world. And then a very good stroke of fortune happened to me. A friend of mine who had a drinking problem, his father came to me and said, I noticed you quit drinking. His friend's nickname was Ding. And he said, you know, Ding's going to lose his job, his wife, his kids, and everything he's got unless he quits. Would you talk to him? Can you help him? And I said, I don't know, but I'll try. So I went to see Ding, and in the process, he informed me that his drinking problem wasn't half as bad as mine had been. And he was probably right. And I suggested, well, I was doing better since I wasn't drinking. And uh, that maybe we could somehow, and he said, well, I can handle my booze. So I suggested to him, I said, say, why don't we go to an AA meeting? He said, you know, I've never been to one. I don't know what the hell they do or what they talk about. But let's go and see what they do. And if we don't like it, we'll just walk out and not say anything to anyone, you know. We'll never go back again. And he allowed us how he didn't think he was that sort of a guy and that he didn't really need AA. So I said, well, you don't really think you're any better than I am, do you? And he said, no. I said, good, I'll pick you up at 7 o'clock. The meeting was 40 miles away at Storm Lake, Iowa. I lived at Ida Grove. There was no group in my town. 
There's a couple of people here who were at that first meeting I attended in Storm Lake. They spoke to me today. So I can't even lie about that. <laughs> but they asked me if I remembered it, and I said, damn little of it. And I don't remember much of it, in all honesty, except that I went to get another guy sober. I didn't go for myself. I took him over, and we walked into the meeting, and God, the guys met me with open arms. You know, I never met so damn many old friends in my life that I drank with, had quit drinking, suddenly disappeared, and I never saw them anymore, and I wondered what happened to them. I found out they joined AA. Well, they very carefully set me in being in the front row. You know, it's a small room, a small meeting, and then a whole parade of them got up in front, started talking about all kinds of antics and things that had happened, you know, and they'd look us right in the eye every time they spoke. And I thought, well, my God, surely they could relate a little of this to someone else. They don't have to talk at all to me. You know, because it was hitting me right in the gut every word they spoke. And I was a little insulted, as a matter of fact. I thought one of them had been following me for a long time. And when that was all over, they offered me a chip. In those days, we gave chips back in Iowa, and I was really offended by that. You know, to think that a big husky guy like me would need a chip to remind him not to take a drink was the last straw. After all, I was an intelligent human being. I hadn't had a drink for 18 months, and I didn't need to carry a damn chip around my pocket to remind me of it. So uh, we were very polite to everyone. We left. <clears throat> we talked about it all the way home. Both kind of decided, well, it was pretty good for those guys, but it wasn't for us. Well, I had a little office on the main street in Idaho Grove, and the next morning a couple guys stopped in to see me accidentally around 9 o'clock, suggested we have a cup of coffee. It turned out they were AA members. They got me glued to a stool and one on either side of me and wrung my ear for about 40 minutes. And they left, and I said, thank God for that, you know, and we we'll got rid of those two. About 11, another one came in, suggested we have a cup of coffee. And uh, I suggested that I had a pot in the back room. Why didn't we just try this instead of going down to the restaurant? So we did. And he uh, said, you know, that he'd heard I was in an AA meeting last night, and he was glad, you know, and all of these things. And I listened carefully, and I was a little warmed up by him because he reached me a little better. When they had lunch, and about 2 in the afternoon, two more came in and thought maybe it was time for a cup of coffee. And I said, all you guys do drink coffee? You know, you're about drowned in it. I don't know when you work. Well, anyway, this kept up all week. They just came by, you know, ten, two, and four, the old <laughs> routine. Occasionally one would stop in about the time I was going home, you know, to see if everything was going all right. Next week, just before the meeting, three of them came by and said, you know, we'd be glad to have you ride to Storm Lake with us this week. You won't have to take your own car. And I, <laughs> you know, I really liked those guys. I didn't want to say no. So I said, well, if Ding will go, I'll go. I thought I had it made, you know. They're not going to get Ding to go again. But they said, well, could we call him right now? Why don't you call him on the phone? And I said, well, I brought him last week. Why don't one of you call him this week? <laughs> Let's see if he'll go back. Well, this is dragging on and on. I'm sorry, but it's the, this is the way it happened, you know. So anyway, I wound up calling him. And we wound up going back to Storm Lake. 
and the bug bit me. Then I kept going back, and a year later I started the group in Ida Grove, and we cleaned up the basement of my old office building. And wives came down, painted it all up, even the wiring, the pipes, and the plumbing, and everything else. And we shut off the stools so you weren't exposed, you know, if you had to relieve yourself. It was a pretty primitive area. But it was an AA meeting room. We got some furniture. I think we furnished the whole room for five bucks. A lot of it was given to us. We were sitting there three years later, and I looked around the room just nonchalantly at the guys that were there. And it dawned on me that there were five members of my high school football team sitting there in that AA meeting. Five of us who had been on the first string football team in Ida Grove were all members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started then to get philosophical about it. I figured, well, hell, it wasn't me. The whole town went bad. Something went wrong. <laughs> Something went wrong, you know, with everyone. It wasn't just me. But anyway, things kept going. From I, I should tell you about the phases I went through. I went out to dry up the world. The end of two years, everybody I thought was drinking too much, I called on them and asked them how their drinking problem was coming. I lost more friends and gained more enemies than any man in town in a short while, I want to tell you. And after about a year of doing that and not reaching anyone at all, not even one, you know, and everyone kept telling me, well, you've got to get a baby, then you're in, you know, you've made it. And everyone I talked to got worse. <laughs> didn't get any better. Even poor Ding didn't make the grade. He kept bouncing like a rubber ball, but he was sober in between the bounces, and I thank God for that. And they got farther and further between, you know, the times that he took off. And I won't say slip, because I don't believe there is any such thing. I know every time I got drunk, I planned it pretty well. It wasn't an accident. And like Paul, I didn't want to swish it around my mouth. I wanted to get enough of it in the gut you know, that the hum hit, and when the hum hit, I wanted to maintain it for as long as I could on what little money I had. But those years went by rapidly, and I'm going to skip the rest of it and come up in the last eight years, because I now operate in a stratosphere that is rarefied air, you know. I have an entirely different clientele than I had in those days. You know, I was a truck driver then. And a damn good one, too. I'm not saying that because I'm apologizing for it. I still got my chauffeur's license. There's a hell of a lot of people trying to get me to go back and drive truck. <laughs> and I'm going to keep it. And I keep it just as an insurance policy. You know, because one of these days I might come up one vote short. And if I do... You know, I'm not qualified for anything to be a senator or a governor. Hell, I haven't got a degree in anything. You know, and all the other jobs in the state or federal government, you've got to have a Ph.D. or a master's degree or something else. I don't dare apply for those jobs. I've got to run for one of the top ones where you don't need any. <laughs> and you've got to... You've got I can hire those guys at nickel a dozen. There's a great surplus of PhDs in the country today. 
Now, education is a beautiful thing. I just got mine where the degrees are on your butt instead of on your paper. You know, and it was tough getting it. I paid my dues, believe me, and they were high. But now that clientele has changed. I'm frequently asked a question, and I'm going to... Some, some of the things I say a lot of you may disagree with. Don't any of you let it bother you. Because in AA, take what you want and leave the rest. I don't mean to be offensive to anyone. I'm an opinionated person. Who the hell isn't? You know, we're all drunks. We didn't get here by having a little ego. Uh, and to say you're an ordinary man, you know, when you do the things that we do, that's just a bunch of crap. That's all there is to it. You're not an ordinary man, nor are you an ordinary woman. You're extraordinary. An extraordinary group of people who found their sobriety. You know, and that's damned unusual anywhere anymore. Because we're losing the battle, we're not winning, in case you all feel too comfortable about it. But a young guy, a reporter, asked me the other day in a press conference, he said, you know, you were listed number seven in the potential presidential candidates. How do you feel about that? And I looked at that kid and I thought, my God, if you knew how long that road was that I came, brother, and you said you're listed as seven, hell, Mars is closer than that. It's closer than that. You know, that was a rough track I came by. But nonetheless, you know, I mentioned when I was here in 63, the very next year, the question of my alcoholism came up in a political campaign in the state of Iowa. And three days before the campaign, I was charged at a meeting and a debate with the fact that I'd lied about when I quit drinking and that I'd been charged with a drunken driving charge in the state of Florida date after a date that I maintained that I was sober. And uh, my own attorney general was running against me. I've never trusted a lawyer since then either, I might add. I always look askance at attorneys after that. But... Anyway, I had expected this to happen for years. And when the charge came up, I simply got up and said to the people in the audience, and the television cameras were all grinding, you know that I am an alcoholic. You know, I did so many things in my life that were wrong. I couldn't list them if I had a, three pages of paper and an hour and a half to do the job, and I regret it. But I can't erase that part of my life. I face it. I don't make any secret of it. It was there, it was me, it was a tragedy. But now let's talk about the issues of the campaign. And I was elected by the greatest plurality ever given a candidate for public office in Iowa. After that happened. And I say that simply because I'm proud of my fellow Iowans who are willing to look at the fact that I am an alcoholic, to accept it, and to re-elect me not only three times as governor, but once to the United States Senate. Now, many times in my present capacity, I'm asked by the press, what do I think the people of America would accept an alcoholic in the White House? And my only answer is, you know, I'd feel a hell of a lot more comfortable with a man in there who doesn't drink than one who does. <laughs>
I listened to a debate yesterday on the floor of the United States Senate in which they were propounding the excellent qualities of the draftees of America. Hell, I'm an example of a draftee. He enlisted. That's, that shows real lack of sense, I want to tell you. And uh, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> the number came up. But anyway, anyway, the question, you know, that constantly comes up in relationship to this is, what will happen? Do we face it? How are we going to face it? What are we going to do about it? What am I? Who are I? I mean, this pressure is continuously there. Now, since I have been in public office, my mail, reflecting the different viewpoints of members of Alcoholics Anonymous in America, would be one of the great things to make a book out of if I dared do it, but I wouldn't because I value their anonymity, and I certainly would never want anyone to read their names. But the first time a national story mentioned the fact that I was an alcoholic and did a story about my life and some of the things that happened to me, I got a letter from a secretary of an AA group in Florida that said, started out, you dirty SOB, I hope you're drunk by the time you get this letter. Anyone, you know, who would reveal and break the anonymity of an AA group doesn't deserve sobriety, and I wrote him a letter back and said, Brother, I hope you pray for the development of my serenity. I can see you're having difficulties with your own, and I'll try and help you out <laughs> in, in the way, too. And, but the differing opinions of people, you know, and the national office had almost a single line of communication with me for a while because every time an article appeared in print about being a member, member of Alcoholics Anonymous, Coral Louise sent me a letter said, please don't talk about it. And I don't. But damn it, I can't stop and print it. You know, it's just like I said eight years ago here. I called the press corps together the first time I ran, and I said, look, I'm a drunk. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't want you to ever print it. They didn't. But two weeks later, Time Magazine did. There was nothing I could do about that. And there's nothing I can do about it anywhere there is except the fact that I want to say that it has placed me in a position where many people in the high annals of our land and in other governments now contact me who have drinking problems. And I wish I could say in every instance I was successful in helping them find their way to sobriety. I can't say that. But in many instances, it has been helpful. And some of them have found their way to sobriety as a result of that. It has also meant that instead of truck drivers and related people contacting me, that I now get contacts from many very wealthy people, uh, many people in universities and around who have to have feel some sort of a peer status, you know, in order to make a contact. I don't tell them I'm a truck driver. <laughs> I let them find out for themselves later on. And as a result of that, I, I think, you know, that by the grace of God, I've got to a place by his will and his will alone where perhaps some key person in our society or in some country may contact me of great importance. I've had testimony before the subcommittee I chair of alcoholics who were members of the nuclear warhead team 
who were drunk for two years in the process of handling the firing machinery of the nuclear warhead. I've had testimony by jet pilots loaded with the latest weapons who were flying drunk at supersonic speeds along international borders. I've had testimonies from people in the highest annals of the military who won't speak out publicly because they dare not. Not just the privates like I was or the buck sergeant, generals and admirals who are alcoholics, who dare not say so because if they do, they lose their security, they never get another promotion, they're through as far as their career is concerned. And I wish that this would change because we're making the problem of reaching people that much more difficult. Maury's got me on a time limit, so I'm going to conclude by telling you what the 12 steps mean to me and what they have meant over these years. I'll run through them as rapidly as I can, and no one can do justice to them, but they have meant life and death to me. They changed my life. They brought God into reality for me. They helped me to love my brother and my neighbor again. They helped me to find my wife and my children, to value the dignity of every human being, and to never be unaware of anyone wherever they might be, in prison or in a king's chair. Because I'd like to you to remember that the very high are very lonely people too, not only the very low. And that loneliness is not a thing unique with us. Humanity is ill with it. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I told you of how I admitted that I was powerless over alcohol and that I could no longer manage my life. But that's an exceedingly difficult step. For five years I struggled after I knew I couldn't drink. And what a hopeless cause that is. Number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This implies, implies that we were insane. Because if we didn't need a power greater than we are to restore us to sanity, then the implication is that we certainly aren't the possessor of sanity at the moment. And as I examined my own life, I certainly then could understand that from the time I drank, I was insane. I was a madman. There was nothing in the realm of normalcy about me. I reacted differently, completely alien to myself. I was two different people, one sober and one drunk. The question was how could I get the two in touch and join the two together and unite them in one spirit that was uniting in one body. So I had to believe that the power could do that. And to me, that power was God that I wanted to try and understand, but I couldn't identify. I needed to have a purpose in life. There had to be some reason that I was born, other than just some sort of a genetic love affair. Had to be an identity with an I am. I am here for a reason. I have something to do. My life has a value to everyone else. And that value must mean something to me, because each of us see this universe differently. 
No one else can see the world quite like you see it. You are the center of your universe. And from your eyes only can anyone grasp that universe. And without you, the universe would be the less and not a total thing. And with our insanity of drunkenness, it certainly was not total. It was an aborted thing. So I believe that this power could restore to me to sanity. I didn't know how. But I had faith that if I could hang on, it would happen. I made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand it. You know, I'd never really turned my will over to anyone. I'd turned my life over to God. But you know, I was unwilling to let God have control of my will, too, because I'm a strong-willed man and a hell of an impatient man. And I, you know, to think that I was going to turn my will over to God, but I thought about that a long time. This, these things happened, me taking these steps, quite a while after I was in AA, years after I went in. I tried everything. I really hadn't found the true serenity that I heard a few guys dreaming about and talking about, nor was I sure that it was ever to be found or that I would ever even understand it. But then I decided that I'd never really taken these steps either. I'd listened to them, I'd talked about them, I'd gone to the step meetings, but I really had never taken them. So then I decided I would turn my will over to God. And I'd include him in all my decisions and try and find some counsel and direction from that. But you know, I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. If you turn your will and your life over to God and then go sit down in the chair, you're all going to rot. That's all there is to it. It's like buying a new car and having it delivered in front of the place and not putting any gas in it, going out, open the door and jump in the back seat and say, take me somewhere. It just ain't going to go. That's all there is to it. You've got to get in the seat, you've got to have some gas in the tank, and you've got to drive it. You get the power from God, you get the direction from God, but you do the driving as you understand him. And I talk about God only as I understand him. Don't try and substitute God as I understand him for God as you understand him. And made four, make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. All of you are so familiar with this step, I won't dwell on it long. A searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, you know, the good and the bad. You don't total it up and see which comes out the best. We all know that. You face whatever it is. That's the point of it. And then you try and eliminate the bad and increase the good. That's the point of that, if you can. And you work at it. It's been stated earlier, none of us ever really succeed, but we keep trying. But we do face it, whatever the reality is. We admit to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. But when you admit it to yourself, you're admitting it to God, as I understand it. Because you might kid me, and you might kid your wife, or your husband, or your father, or your mother, but you can't kid yourself or God. You know. You know. And you know the nature of your wrongs. And when it comes to admitting the nature of those wrongs to another human being. That was exceedingly difficult for me, and it took me years to accomplish it. Because some of the things that I did were so embarrassing to me personally that I never wanted to talk to anyone about them after they happened, or to reveal them to another individual, and I just had to go to God with them and leave it at that, as I understood it. 
because I couldn't bear the thought of anyone else having to share that with me. And we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. You thought I thought I was ready when I took these steps, but then I discovered a couple of years later that I hadn't been ready, because there had been one man in particular that I'd enjoyed hating so much that I didn't want to quit hating him. It was a personal little enjoyment to him to have that dirty SOB over there to just every time I got mad I could think of him and I was happy again because of the, he was such a bum in my opinion. Well, I realized that even God included him all at once. And that was a pretty bad thought that day. It was a very bad thought because it meant I had to do something about it. And I didn't want to. I mulled that over for a couple of months, and finally I drove 150 miles to see him. Walked up five floors of stairs because I didn't want to take the elevator and get there too fast. <laughs> Went in and asked his secretary if I could talk to him. I did, and I said, God help me, you know, because I really don't want to do this. And I didn't. In all honesty, I didn't. Even though I understood I had to, I didn't want to do it. Because I really didn't like the guy, and I... I couldn't see any reason to change that. Pretty enjoyable experience. Now, some of you know what I mean. I know damn well he wouldn't be laughing. At that. And, uh, you're the ones I'm talking to. I hope you'll take point of this right now. Well, I sat down in the chair and I proceeded to tell him, you know, that I was sorry for the differences that been between us. I really wasn't. He wasn't either, my dad. I told him that I was willing to forgive and forget if I'd been wrong, and I really wasn't sure that I had, but he thought I had. And you know, at the time I was going through this procedure, I felt a cleansing sort of thing because I suddenly realized that I was wrong. Not only had been wrong, I was still wrong, all wrong, very bad, four square wrong. And when I got through it, something had happened to me. And then he proceeded for the next 30 minutes to read my pedigree in a way that I've never had it talked about before. And I thought, well, that tore it, bud. You know, I've stretched the point getting here, and I know I've been wrong, and God's informed me that I've been wrong, and now I'm really sorry, and you won't accept it. And I just told him that I regretted very much that he felt that way and left. That seemed the only way out. I walked down the stairs again, depressed, and when I got down, he met me in the lobby. He'd taken the elevator and beat me down there, and he had tears in his eyes. He grabbed me by the hand and asked for my forgiveness. And we must have looked rather silly, two grown men standing crying in the lobby of a big office building, shaking hands. But we became the best of friends, and all those years since that time have been, and I've been grateful that I really decided to take that step. We're entirely ready to have God to remove these defects of character. As I said, please be ready. Because the time and the necessity of it is with us, and we humbly ask him to remove these shortcomings. There's only one way to ask God anything I know of, and that's through prayer. You know, that implies that we can communicate with God. Now, if you're going to ask God to remove a shortcoming, you know, the best way I know how to do it is on your knees, in humility, in hope, and in faith and belief that it will happen, because it will happen. But, you know, if we're going to pray, many of us have been so clouded, and what I'm going to repeat really is not my thoughts, the things that have been told me years ago that I'll try and recall as best I can. When I sought help on these steps myself, and, 
and they were explained to me. And a man said, you know, said, when you were born, you were relatively a clean spirit, free, conceived in sin, yes, but clean and free. But all the years after that, you started covering yourself, the very center of your being, with all the things you did wrong, just like a head of cabbage or a head of lettuce. Every year is a new layer of insulation between you and God and clear communication. And as you progressed into alcoholism and the deeds piled up and the lies piled up and the moral wrongs piled up, the insulation got bigger and bigger until there was no communication, sort of like a television set that's full of snow and can't quite tune the channel in. You not only can't transmit to God, you can't receive from God because the set's all screwed up. You know, do you need a repairman? And the repairman is you in this instance because if you take that step then, where you start to peel these off, you make a list of the people you'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all, that's peeling the leaves off. That's starting to bear the spirit and the soul again. Now you ask God to help you remove these shortcomings. And now we have a couple of things we've got to do in order to help him help us. One is you make a list of the people we harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Now, whether you can or not, at least be willing to do it. And if for no other reason, write out the list. And it took me a lot of years to even do that. Just sit down and physically write it out. There's therapy in doing it. And I at first used to say, well, wad it up and throw it in the wastepaper basket. I wouldn't advise that burn it up. Someone might read it in the wastebasket. And then at least you're rid of it. You've faced it physically and mentally, and that's important. You make direct amends to such people wherever possible and accept when to do so would injure them or others. That's your willingness to go and see and do and correct those things that are wrong. And since 90% of them are in your own family anyway, you can begin to do it right at home. Now, as these leaves peel off and your spirit becomes bare again and open for communication to God, if you really take these steps... Step number 10 then says we continue to take a personal inventory and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. Now, the purpose for that, it was explained to me, is that when I retire every night, that I ought to get on my knees to God as I understand him, and I ought to look at the day and see what I've done with it. And you know, there's never been a day of my life that I haven't looked back and see that I haven't really offended someone some way by carelessness, by omission, things that I should have done that I didn't, kindnesses that I should have extended that I didn't. I was impatient. I was cross. But you peel off the leaf that night instead of letting it cover up your heart again. And you keep peeling them off every day of your life from here on. You take that inventory. You look at it squarely. You look at it now and you correct it. And 11, you sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Which implies that You've got to pray through prayer and meditate. Now, I'm sure these steps came about for a purpose. And prayer and meditation is something that it takes a lifetime, really, to begin to understand. It's important because through the years that I really started to meditate, and I'm talking now about going on, of trying to grow, because every day is a struggle for growth, and I'm not saying to the new or younger members, to complicate the program or screw it up by complexity. I'm just saying for some of you who've been coasting all those years and may be sober for 25 and think, hell, it's all been good, you haven't grown an inch in 24, you know that maybe it's time to... <laughs> maybe it's time to review it. 
maybe it's time to review it a little and see if we haven't got some place to go up again and praying for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And that's an important step, knowledge of will. It's hard to understand at times which decision to make because you're at the forks of the road constantly in your life and you really don't know which way to go. And you have to determine where you can best be of service to your brother and to your God as you understand him. As 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all our lives. That opening phrase, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, that's an affirmative statement that if you take the other 11 steps, you will have had a spiritual experience and an awakening. Not a Damascus experience, perhaps, as St. Paul had, perhaps ever so slowly, by points of evolution of the spirit and growth and study and work, but you will have awakened something in you that had long since been dead, that's young, that's alive, that's lifting, that's exhilarating, a knowledge that you know, that you know there is a purpose for you, a way to go, things to do, and you've got to be about the business you came here for. So you carry this message to the alcoholics and practice these principles in all your affairs. And I'll close what I say tonight the way I did in 1963. You know, this has been my secret weapon in politics. People are trying to figure out what the hell my angle is. You know, and my angle is try and do what God directs me to do to the best of my ability, wherever I go and however I live. And that's the best political angle I can think of. Now, I don't always succeed, and I fail. And I find myself making bad decisions at wrong times. But every time I find myself happening to that is because I'm putting God in the back seat and not letting him sit up front with me. It's because I'm trying to drive the world instead of letting him drive it and let me help a little. I get the things reversed, you know, occasionally. We all do. I sometimes get to thinking I'm pretty damned important. You know, that's a constant struggle particularly with a public official. We all have big egos, as I've said before, and when you have a little success, man, your head grows bigger than your feet. That's all there is to it. And you get brought up pretty short at times, and I've been brought up pretty short at times because I suddenly find myself empty. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I've got a million people wanting an answer, and I... People, a million of people want the answer now and expect me to be omniscient. I'm not omniscient, ladies and gentlemen, nor is any other public official. I have sat in jails and in prisons. I have known presidents and kings and emperors. I have sat in the courts and I have sat in the prison courts. And I have known men and women from all walks of life. And by the grace of God, as near as I can tell, they put their pants on the same as I do. And they don't have any particular pipeline that I'm aware of that I don't have available to me. And that's the strength of my faith and my belief in God and my love of my brothers and mankind. As a man said to me today, he owes everything he's got to us. I owe everything I've got to those who have loved me, who have helped me, who have reached out their hand to me. 
and to a God who has always been there when I reached out in tears and sweat and agony. And I thank God that I now reach out to him in love and joy, and not just when I'm defeated. Thank you very much.